Seems like Easter this morning, right? Doesn't it? He is risen. Good. You guys, I know, I know you'll hit that on Easter morning. I wondered if you'd hit it today. He is risen indeed. The writer of this gospel really believes that. He really believes that Jesus rose from the dead. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Many of you would say you've come to believe that. There are likely some in this room who would say, I don't believe that. Or I'm not sure if I believe that. Because many people find that hard to believe. Now, some people get around this by, by saying things like that the purpose of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the example of Jesus live on. But that he is physically dead. So you see what they're doing there? They're saying, yeah, Jesus in the sense of what he represented, what he symbolized, his teachings, his purpose, his love. Those things live on, but that he is physically dead. And I was reading a pastor who was interacting with this idea, and he said this, if the example of Jesus, if, if it's only the example of Jesus that lives on while he's really dead, you can only know him as an example. You can't know him as a person. You can't know what it means to have Jesus... To, live within you. You can't know what it's like to have a personal relationship with an example. You can't know what it means to have Jesus come in and intervene in your life if he's not alive. If he's not alive, he's not a living force. He can't begin to direct your life. So you will have what Paul refers to as a form of religion without any power. Who wants that? If all we have is a form of religion without any power, I should stay home and watch football games on Sunday. And you should too, because we're wasting our time. If all we have is a form of religion without any power. But there's another possibility. You could actually believe what the Bible teaches about the resurrection of Jesus, but you've never had a profound personal experience of with Jesus, with the living Jesus, a profound experience of the resurrection. You haven't had your own spiritual resurrection. So, so if you are someone that says, I believe in the resurrection, but I haven't had my own spiritual resurrection, then you end up in the same place, a form of religion without any power. So what I'm saying is this. On the one hand, the resurrection is a fact that must to be, be believed. And on the other hand, it's an experience. It's, a, it's an experience that you have to personally connect with. If you have one without the other, if you have historical fact without personal experience, or if you have a, a personal experience without the, the, the fact or the reality, you'll come out with a form of religion without any power. So my organizing question this morning is this. Do you know them both? 
Do you believe that the resurrection is true? Do you see it and view it as historical fact? And have you had a personal experience of Christ? You have to have both. The resurrection is a fact to be comprehended, but the facts of the resurrection lead to implications for our lives, personal implications leading to personal experience. If you want to experience God, and I I would say probably everybody in here, unless you got dragged here uh, apart from your, you know, apart from your desire or you're young enough that your parents made you come, unless that's true of you, you have some desire to experience God or you wouldn't be sitting in a church on Sunday morning. If you want to experience God, then there's truths that must be believed. You have to believe certain things. And when you believe that Jesus really lived, really died, really was raised, then that leads to an experience of God. And then the more you experience God, the more deeply you want to understand truth, which leads to more experience of God which leads to more of a desire for truth, which leads to more experience of God. That's the cycle of the Christian. So let's get get to work into this passage. And what I want to show you is some truths about the resurrection that we must believe, and then we'll look at the implications for us personally. And I'll mix the implications in. Some of them will be really obvious. Title this this morning's sermon, Resurrection, Comprehensions and Implications. So I want to give you three truths about the resurrection that we must comprehend. Then we'll look at some implications. And let me tell you this. The first one is big. So the first point, if you think all the points are going to be equal in in length, you're going to get discouraged maybe because the first one's going to be long. We've got to establish something here. Then the second two will move a little quicker. Let me give you all three up front. The resurrection is historical. The resurrection is personal. The resurrection is universal. Let me tell you again, the three truths, three things we need to comprehend about the resurrection, we'll see them from this passage. The resurrection is historical. The resurrection is personal. The resurrection is universal. Let's dig into historical. John, we know, is the writer of the gospel. Incidentally, he, is, he identifies himself as the one that Jesus loved, not in a, a proud way. He's, he, he's, he uses this as a way of naming himself, and, and we also learn that he's a little bit faster than Peter. <laughs> so we're learning some things about John. And what he has done is he's recorded for us some eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Now, we're going to see that the, resur- the empty tomb alone does not imply that Jesus rose from the dead. But clearly we have an encounter. Mary has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. The, the other disciples and Mary see an empty tomb. But he's recording, and he's going to go on to record, we're going to see this, that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus appears to more people in the gospel account and in the scriptures you can read more about those different encounters that the resurrected Jesus had with these eyewitnesses but eyewitnesses are important you gotta have an, you gotta have somebody that witnessed it if you want to if you want to make the claim that Jesus rose from the dead somebody needed to have seen him after he died it makes sense so John provides some 
history for us. Now, I think it's important to remember, because I think this, this, when we talk about our hearts being warmed by the Scripture, I think it's important to remember where all the characters that you're seeing now, we haven't been in John for a while, I want you to remember where we last left them in this story, because that'll give the story some light. Jesus, we last saw him, he, he, we're, we're seeing him here, risen, again, risen from the dead. But where we last left him was hanging on the cross, where he died, breathed his last, and then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took his body, his dead body, off of the cross and buried him. That's where we left him. Peter, last place we saw him. Do you remember where that was? Last, he's warming himself by the fire, denying Jesus, falls apart when the rooster crows, and we haven't seen him since. John, where'd we leave him? Standing at the cross, observing the, his dying friend Jesus, and receiving instructions from Jesus that, that he wanted John to take care of his mother Mary. Where, and Mary, we left her there too. Mary was there at the cross, watched Jesus die, and now we see her going to the grave. This is a group of, of messed up people. These people are desperate. They are totally disillusioned. They are completely depressed. They bank their lives bank their lives on a belief that Jesus was somebody special, that he was this Messiah. They didn't understand it all, but their belief that he was going to, to, to do something incredible has been crushed with his death and his burial. They have no concept of what they're about to, to encounter. No concept. In other words... Just like Paul would say, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ has not taken place, then our faith is futile, empty, meaningless, pointless, without value. This is how they felt. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And we explained that what he meant by that is all the mission that he came to accomplish through his life and then his death on the cross in the place of sinners was finished. He finished it. But there isn't a real sense that it wasn't finished just with his death. So what does John do? What does God do? He puts the resurrection of Christ in close proximity to his death. For John, nothing could be more disastrous than to consider the cross in isolation from the resurrection. You understand this, right? If Jesus doesn't rise again, our faith is meaningless. It's pointless. He can't save us. The resurrection is the immutable, unchangeable fact on which Christianity is based. God's story doesn't culminate in a condemned criminal hanging on the cross. It culminates in a resurrection that proves he was vindicated by God, that he was the son of God that he claimed to be. Amen? Amen. 
This is the story of how Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. And the empty tomb that John and Peter saw. But we should ask the question, when we look at the different gospel accounts, you'll actually see what appear to be inconsistencies. The gospel writers tell of different things happening at the resurrection and different people seeing Jesus. John has carefully crafted this gospel. Like, he put this together. It's interesting to note, too, that John was the last gospel writer. So he loved Jesus, he was close to Jesus, but his is the last one written. So he likely had access to the others. He's reading those and then determining, how am I going to tell my account inspired by the Holy Spirit? So he's making choices. He's, he tells us, I love verse 30, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, because if they were written, there's not enough room in the world to hold all the books. So John clearly didn't tell us everything that Jesus did. He selected. He made choices. So the question we should be asking is, why does he tell us the story about John and John outrunning Peter and Peter going into the tomb and then John believing? And then why does he tell us the story about Mary? Why did he select these two episodes? He's using two stories to highlight two important things. The first story is Peter and John racing to the tomb. What does it highlight? Empty tomb. Then he tells you the next story about Mary that doesn't highlight the empty tomb. It highlights Jesus is alive. He's not dead anymore. It highlights the resurrection. The historical Christian faith is established on both of these facts. You need to have an empty tomb and you need to see the risen Christ. The, re- the appearance of Jesus without an empty tomb is problematic because maybe the death was a good fake job. Maybe he didn't really die. Maybe it was a hallucinatory vision. An empty tomb, though, if all we have is an empty tomb, that could mean things other than a resurrection. Some could claim, as many have claimed, that his body was stolen. So John is showing his readers that the resurrection is a historical fact based on both an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. These two have always gone together throughout Christian history. An empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus after his death. We look for witnesses in life when we want to know what really happened. You look for an eyewitness when you want to know what really happened in that situation. And what John is saying here is that there's real eyewitnesses that can be called to the stand. They can be brought in to testify. And he's not alone in that. John's not alone in establishing the resurrection as as historical fact. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm just going to turn there for a minute. You don't need to, but you can look at it later. But in 1 Corinthians 15, which incidentally was written uh, before the Gospel of John, you might not know that. You, think that. you might think they were all written in order, but that's not the way it is. Uh, 1 Corinthians was probably written before any of the other Gospels. 
Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, writes that he delivered a message to them of first importance. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried. Now just start counting mentally uh, when we find out how many people Jesus appeared to. Okay, he was raised, after he died, he was raised, Paul tells us, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, so John and him are lining up there, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, which probably means the writer of the book of James, who is Jesus' brother, who we know from the other gospel accounts wasn't a believer at the time of Jesus' death, wasn't a follower at the time of Jesus and the teaching he was doing. So he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You see what Paul is doing here? He's telling of the eyewitnesses. Now, notice he doesn't mention Mary. I don't know why he didn't. Doesn't mean that she didn't see him. Paul's bringing forth his argument. John's bringing forth his argument. But today, when we talk about the resurrection, try it this afternoon. Try to talk to a neighbor about the resurrection of Jesus and just see what kind of looks you got. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And you'll get looks like, do you really believe that? That's like, that's like a fairy tale, man. So let me help us to process this. How should we think about those who would say they don't believe in the resurrection? Let me tell you what oversimplified Christians might do. What do you mean don't believe the resurrection? You're stupid. Of course Jesus rose from the dead. Hadn't you ever been to church? Don't you know that everybody who's not a Christian is going to hell, so that means you? That, that's not what we're trying to create here, okay? How about some interaction? How about some, how about some humility on our part towards those who don't know Jesus just like we didn't at one time? But how, how should we think about this? Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think I've, I'm not sure I believe in the resurrection of anyone. How should we respond? You know, a lot of people think Christians are gullible, right? You know that. You're a gullible sort of people. What we should appeal for from anyone who would say they don't believe in the re resurrection is just that we're able to have fair intellectual discussion. You gotta interact with those. So if you say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, okay, but you gotta interact with that in an, intellectual, in an intellectually fair way. Because if you don't believe what the Bible says, what the New Testament record is of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then what you must believe is an alternative view. You have to, if you don't believe in that, then you've got to believe something else. And I think 
there's really only two plausible alternatives to the, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's only two plausible, and that's what most scholars would say as well. One alternative, the disciples were deceivers. They were liars. Or the second one is the disciples were deceived. Those, those, those are your two options. They are either deceivers or they have been deceived. If you don't believe the New Testament's explanation of these events, you've got to fasten yourself to one of those alternatives. The disciples and, 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 and what the Bible tells us is they were deceivers or that they were in, them fact, in fact deceived. So let's look at these two arguments. The disciples were deceivers. That's why I told you the first point is going to be longer. Let's just consider that. Were the disciples deceivers? Because some people think that. I don't believe it's real because somebody's lying. Somebody made this stuff up. So if they're deceivers, that means that they lied and didn't believe it either. Now, it's important to note that there's no real scholars, even secular scholars, that actually would, would hold that argument as a valid one. And there's reasons for that. The character of the disciples in the, in the, the scriptures makes that really too hard to swallow. Whatever you might say about the characters even of this story, you can't say that they come off as liars or deceivers. Peter doesn't, Paul doesn't, John doesn't, Mary doesn't. But that's... That doesn't really do a lot for us. But if they are lying, if the disciples were lying, this is the most incredibly successful conspiracy theory campaign in the history of humanity. Most of the disciples died horribly. Peter crucified upside down. At some point, I say, I give. It was only a lie. Don't kill me for this. They were willing to die for this. Hardly the posture of the character of a deceiver. That seems incomprehensible to me that they'd be willing to die for a lie. And for 2,000 years, they have managed to persuade nearly everybody that they were right. And that's an exceedingly difficult thing to do. Can you imagine keeping the lid on a lie for that long? I mean, my brother and I used to conjure up some lies and try to pull one over on our parents. But man, we could never get that far. We could never keep the lid on it for that long. Somebody would like blow it. Somehow. The glaring look from across the room. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> they got it. They got us. It's hard for human beings to hold on to a lie. It can be done. But for us to collaborate, for them to collaborate, all these, the 12, the Marys, the, the 500 followers, for all of them to collaborate and hold together a lie for so long. And, and I, I want you to see this as well. Because if John's a liar, he's not a good one. 
the first eyewitness he calls is Mary Magdalene. Women in the ancient Near East, in the time of Jesus, were undervalued, under-honored. And their testimony, their eyewitness testimony, was inadmissible in court. Let that highlight for you the value that Jesus places on women in Christianity. But let it also help you to see this. If you were attempting to deceive, you would have never done that. If he was spreading a lie, he would not have made Mary exhibit A. We've already, cho- we've already said that he's chosen, he's carefully selected who he's going to, to, to use to tell this story. He would not have selected Mary first, especially an emotional woman that had been freed from seven demons. She's not a credible eyewitness. Why did he do it? Why did he do that? Because he's not lying. He's telling the truth. This is how it happened. I mean, I, I do think about this. The, the best woman to choose. I mean, think about it. Who would be the best woman to choose to re- for Jesus to reveal his resurrected body to first. Let's go Virgin Mary. That, I mean, that seems to make the most sense, but we have no evidence from Scripture that Jesus ever personally revealed his resurrected self to his own mother. Now, he may have, but we, we, we don't have it. So what I'm saying is if you don't believe what the Bible says about the resurrection and you choose this alternative that the disciples were deceivers, then you're more gullible than any Christian I know. Now let's move to the second alternative. The disciples were deceived. I think this one holds way more weight than the first one. What we're talking about here is a situation where Mary and every other person who said they saw Jesus had such an intense vision that was so powerful, so dramatic, so vivid that they actually thought it was true, but it wasn't. Was Mary in such a deep state of sorrow? I mean, she already told us that Jesus appeared to her and she thought it was a gardener. So clearly, there's some confusion going on. Jesus in his resurrected body obviously looks different than in his his pre-resurrected body, right? Or she wouldn't confuse him. And when you are in deep sorrow, have you ever been in deep emotion, deep sorrow, deep sense of loss, deep sense of mourning? You can see things or wish things or hope for things. You can pick Mary's testimony apart. But if you're going to hold to this theory that what Mary had was basically what we're describing as a hallucination, then what you have to do is is make the case that all of them, Mary and all of the people, even up to 500 others, all 
had hallucinations. So if you're in the court of law and the other lawyer brings them forward as eyewitnesses, all you say is hallucination, 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 hallucination. It's not going to hold up real well. They all had the same exact hallucination. Jesus appeared to over 500 people, some of whom had never seen him before. They saw him resurrected, hadn't seen him. Paul. Different times Jesus appears, different situations over the course of 40 days. They all had the same hallucination. And I'm saying that if you can accept that, I'm submitting to you that that requires a more kind of blind, unreasonable, incredible, gullible leap of faith than a simple reading of the New Testament documents. Growing up, one of our news stations was Channel 3. I grew up before cable. Marketed themselves as eyewitness news. <laughs> eyewitness news. You're laughing, some of you, because you remember, I think they might still call themselves that. Eyewitness news. The descriptive adjective eyewitness is meant to lend credibility to their claims. They weren't just making it up. We look for witnesses when we want to know what really happened. And what John is saying here is that real witnesses can be called forth, can take the stand to verify that the resurrection of Jesus is historical fact. So the question is this. Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? The resurrection is a fact to believe. It's not less than that. It is more than that. But it's not less than that. It's more than right. It intends to be personally experienced. So we're talking about what we have to comprehend. That was the first point. We'll move more quickly through the second two. The first, the resurrection is historical. Second, resurrection is personal. Third, resurrection is universal. It's personal. I want us to try to climb into this second part of the story. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Try to feel what she's feeling. That's what I, that's what I, when I pray that the Bible would warm our hearts, that's what I'm praying, that we would feel what we should feel. It's emotional. Mary appears at the tomb. We're told she's weeping outside it. She's a burdened woman. She's burdened for a number of reasons, primarily because she has lost, she is experiencing the pain of losing someone that she loved deeply. Have you ever lost someone that you loved deeply? Can you imagine the pain you would feel if the someone maybe who's sitting right next to you died suddenly, the sense of searing pain and loss that you would experience. That's what Mary's experiencing. It was dark, we're told, when she arrived at the tomb. This woman got up early, couldn't sleep, went to the grave to grieve. The darkness of the hour is a perfect counterpart to the spiritual darkness that clouds the understanding of anyone apart from Christ. There's probably some other strong emotions bubbling in her heart. Maybe a sense of betrayal. Jesus, I thought you were this. 
I thought you were going to do this. I thought that you were going to accomplish this. I thought that this was what you were about. And I've banked my life on this. And somehow the hopes that Jesus had taught her, had put into her, aren't going to be realized. Have you ever had your hopes dashed? Have you ever felt like, I I, I see this, I hope in this, I want this. And then you realize you're not going to get it. That's Mary. Loss of hope is a painful thing to endure. But there's even more than that. I don't think it's going too far to speculate that there may have been some fear on Mary's part. Luke tells us that Mary was one from whom seven demons had come out. Her life was a living hell before Jesus. Jesus set her free. With Jesus gone, what assurance does she have that those seven demons ain't coming back with a vengeance? And we're told that Mary sees angels. Evidently, that doesn't have any effect on Mary whatsoever. All she says to them is, listen, if you're legit card-carrying, heaven-is-your-home angels, then just tell me where the heck he is. She's <laughs> not impressed by them at all. Where'd you put him? And at that, something makes her look behind her. She thinks it's the gardener. Little parentheses. The first Adam failed in the garden, but the second Adam has incredibly succeeded in the garden. But she doesn't recognize Jesus with her eyes in his changed state, but something gives Jesus identity away. Something indicates to Mary that this is Jesus. It's not what she sees. One word. One very personal word. One word response from Mary. Jesus. Rabboni. My Jesus. His sheep know his voice. You know his voice? See, you have to know Jesus. If you know Jesus, you may not have had an encounter like Mary did, but through the Spirit and by faith, you know that Jesus is alive, that he's real. In all her pain, Jesus is there for Mary personally. His coming banishes all of her sorrow, all of her sense of betrayal, all of her fears. That's the whole point of the story. The entire point of the resurrection is that we can meet Jesus in the same way today. Do you want that? Don't you want to know Jesus? Are you you here and you know Jesus in that way? Rejoice. An encounter with the risen Jesus for you will be just as life-transforming as it was for Mary. He's triumphant over death. He's alive for forever. He still comes to transform our broken, sorrowful, fearful lives with the incredible, unhindered gladness of discovering that he is alive for you.
Oh, there's so much more I could say. But this is to be personal. Jesus is inviting you. Jesus is summoning you to move from this sense of his general love of the world, general love for the world, John 3.16 kind of love. He's summoning you out of that, that for God so loved the world. That's a general sense of love. Jesus wants to move you from that general sense of love to a place where you know his love personally so that you can say like Paul in Galatians 2, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that, church? You got to be able to say that. Because until you can say that, you might believe that the resurrection is true, but you haven't had a personal encounter with Jesus. Let me get the band to return. So we've been talking about the fact that there's these things we must comprehend. We've got to comprehend that the resurrection is historical. We've got to comprehend that the resurrection is personal, which has personal implications. And finally... The resurrection is universal. The account ends with Mary. So you see how it ends. Mary is clinging to Jesus. There's so many things. Why does he say don't cling to me? Uh, we can't get into that now. You go home and do some buddy's Bible study. But the account ends with Mary being sent. He's saying go tell my brothers. Go tell the others. Go tell the disciples. Go share the good news. You've experienced this good news. Now go share it with others. The joy that Mary experienced, that transforming joy of everything. She's been liberated. Every fear, every sorrow, every, every sense of betrayal, all of it's gone. It's transformed in the, in the life of a resurrected Jesus. But that joy is never, ever, ever, you'll never see this in the Bible, where, where the implications are, go, go enjoy that joy for yourself. Don't share it with anybody. It's yours. We never see that. The joy of the resurrection is never something that's supposed to be enjoyed subjectively in, in isolation to others. It's always this, go tell the brothers, go tell the others, go tell, go share the good news. It, the good news wants to be spread. I mean, if we're, if we're Christians and we're not actually participating in the mission that he's called us to, there's something about the gospel uh, and, and Jesus alive inside of us that makes us unsettled over that, that, that that's not okay because it wants to get out of us. I wish I were a better evangelist, but I do know what that feels like. Do you know what that feels like? You want to tell it. Has anything good ever happened to you that you didn't want to tell others? Why? Because the resurrection's got universal. It's universal. We've got to comprehend that it's universal. It's not just meant for Mary. It's not just meant for, for John. It's not just meant for Peter. It's universal. There's this inescapable implication of the Easter faith for every generation. Mary's, I have seen the Lord. Verse 18, must lead to go and make disciples of all nations. The resurrection, 
It's the vindication of the life and death of the Son of God, the person of God who entered our world that salvation might be one for every tongue, tribe, and nation. Easter isn't just for us, church. It's for the world. Some of your friends, they just need to hear it. They just need to see this for themselves, but God wants to use you to tell them. And maybe they'll have an experience like John did. Like, like you'll start to tell them and something, like he went down there and he saw those empty grave clothes and something clicked for him. The empty tomb caused him to believe, even though it says, for as yet they didn't understand the scripture. So, so he believed, and when he believed, it opened up a pathway to deeper understanding of the scriptures. Some of, them, some of your friends just need that. Some of your family members just need that. Some of you just need that. And I want you to notice something else. Observe how different the responses of the two disciples are. John, we've already noted, he's a lot faster than Peter. That's a picture, though, I've had in my mind. Can you picture it? Can you picture those disciples? It's dark. Mary comes back in the dark, says the, the, the grave's empty. She tells Peter, which is really curious. I mean, he's already denied him. Like, why tell him first? God's always up to something good. She tells John. I don't know where the other disciples were. I don't know why it's just them. I don't know if the other guys just didn't wake up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. But I do know that John tells us, and he was one of them, that when they heard that, they took off running. And, and I can, if I close my eyes and I imagine it, I can hear their footsteps in the dawn of the morning on that hard-packed dirt road, just running as fast as they can, and Peter's falling behind. They got a glimmer of hope. I don't know what's going on, but he says, she says the tomb's empty. Let's go. Maybe Jesus is going to flip the script again. I don't know what he's going to do this time, but he certainly was capable of flipping the script while he was alive. Maybe he's going to flip it again. John smokes Peter. He gets there first, but he only looks in. Here comes Peter. He's coming. Like a freight train, probably older than, than, than John, maybe a little heavier than John. But he comes by, John's standing there like this. What's Peter do? Never even stops. Right into the tomb. And then John decides to follow him in. Isn't that just like Peter? Peter, the denier, comes in breathing hard, but he doesn't even wait a minute. Crashes right into the tomb. Peter runs right in. John, more contemplative more meditative. One is not better than the other. Some of you are more impulsive people. Some of you are more meditative people. What's important is that you enter into a relationship with Jesus by believing and through believing have life in his name. And I wonder, 
if there are some who have been standing on the edges, waiting on the sidelines, waiting in the wings, and the Lord is saying, it's time. It's time to make a move like Peter's. It's time to, to, it's trying to take hold of Jesus and believe and have a personal experience and a personal relationship with him to have life in his name. Things we got to comprehend. Resurrection is historical. It's personal. It's universal. And those second true truths have real implications for us all. Let's believe this and let's live in the good of it, church. And let's sing now to Jesus.